Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. may end up starting health stuff too, which is fine. Um, okay, so generally a person, as you know, personality is, is, is about consistency across situations, consistency in behavior, consistency in cognition. Um, no one's denying the role of the situation. Uh, that's what social psychology is, and it's an important thing. So no one denies the role. Well, there was a time when people did. There was also a time when people denied that there basically denied personality existed. Uh, that, that, that there was a, or that it was such a small thing that didn't matter. And of course, part of the reasoning there is that when you take a personality questionnaire, uh, let's say you're measuring someone's, oh, I don't know, let's pick the characteristic, how about aggressiveness, okay? Um, and you get a good, nice scale that's nice and reliable and stuff. And then you try to correlate that with a behavior that would involve aggression, like how many arguments you've been in the last week. Those kind of things, you tend to get a correlation between those things of about 0.3. Now, you guys have all taken statistics, right? You know that that means you are explaining the grand total of 9% of the variance. And that's not a lot of variance. And personality psychologists thought me very excited about 9% of variance, about 0.3 correlations. And then this led a lot of social psychologists in the 1970s to say, look, uh, is a personality? I mean, there were probably a, a sort of lunatic phrase that said there wasn't. But they said, look, this is so unimportant. It explains so little variance that why, why even study it? So in fact, there's an interesting study, a cool study done by a guy named Epstein in 1983. And what he did is he gave people questionnaires, but he had multiple measures. So let's say, uh, so questionnaires on, on personality characteristics. But instead of having just one, this is a problem, one behavior, like number of arguments you've made. Sure. But what if you look at a number of behaviors over a month-long period instead of like in the last week? Suddenly the correlations go up to around 0 0.5, 0 0.6, which means you're completely, completely. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> Explaining between 25 and 36%, that's 0 0.5 and 0.6. She's square. That's, that's how you get the amount of variance explained. Suddenly if you're explaining a quarter or over a third of the variance, then you really have something. So that was an important sort of landmark paper, I think, in, in personality uh, studies. So it's actually kind of cool that now no one denies it anymore. No one denies the situation plays a role. Again, to deny either of those things would make you stupid. <laughs> it's just ridiculous to deny that there is this effect of a situation, and it's ridiculous to, to deny there is an effect of, of, of individual differences of, of, of personality. That's just crazy. It's in, in fact, it reminds me a great deal of the sort of nature-nurture thing. I think if people would get over some of these things, um, they can then just look at things like amount of variance explained, which is all like heritability, and uh, they can just move on. So our focus on what makes, in this class, we're going to talk about what makes us the same. 
Um, a lot of times what personality psychologists are interested in is what makes us different from each other, individual differences. Um, so in a lot of respects, people that don't know anything about evolutionary psychology a lot of times criticize it, saying it's all about looking at differences and it's all about looking at how different groups are different from each other, be they different, uh, where different people come from, or, like, uh, or, or sex differences. And in fact, really, we'll be more interested, think about it, if we're looking at almost from an animal behavior perspective, we're more interested in what makes humans interesting as humans. So it's what is consistent among humans, not really, what really divides us into different groups, which is fascinating stuff for this understanding. But that's not going to be the focus for us. There are interesting uh, questions we can ask, though, from an evolutionary angle. There's no argument. Right. Most of those things would be sex differences. And they're not going to be, again, I mean, the same thing as what groups not, not individuals. All right. So first question we can ask is, why is there variability in personality? Why is it that humans actually are different from each other? It's a general question, right? Now, yeah, we look at other animals, they're going to be different somewhat from each other, sure. But you rarely see, I don't think we see at least, the level of variation in behavior in within animals that we do within us, within non-human animals versus us. Also, remember going back, we go back to about 2,000 of our, an our ancestors, it's a group between uh, 200 and 2,000 people. We're all related, we're all one species. So, the first thing is it could be variation around an optimum, which we see in all kinds of animals, right? There are bigger, there are faster cheetahs and slower cheetahs. They're all pretty fast, but some of them are faster than others. Fair enough. Could just be normal variation around an optimum. Um, I like this idea. The optimal value, I shouldn't say optimum value, optimal value, for some personality characteristic changes over time. Was it sensible to be, let's think about a sex difference, one's a classic one, my pressure between males and females, okay? Is it sensible now for there to be a big difference in Western industrialized society? No. Um, and in fact, it's probably suboptimal for, for, for a guy to be really aggressive now. They end up going to jail, don't they? Right. But evolution's fighting the last war. It probably made a great deal of sense to be pretty aggressive a long time ago because you'd be fighting other males. You'd also be hunting, which is controlled aggression, but still aggression. Hmm. So the optimal value for something changes over time, and evolution has to catch up. It's going to take a long time for that to get bred out of the humans. That ain't going anywhere anytime soon. That's a possibility. I like that. Um, Frequency-dependent selection plays a role as well. And that's the idea that the amount of, and select, that, that something can be optimal if it's rare, 
If everybody is aggressive, being peaceful is actually a really good strategy. You know why? Because everybody else fights and they get hurt and you don't. Hawks and doves. You guys, a lot of you guys know about hawks and doves. Some of you do, some of you don't. You learned about that if you took animal behavior or behavioral ecology last year. If you don't, it's pretty simple. If you've got hawks, these aren't actual hawks and actual doves, they're strategies. So you've got a hawk, it always fights, and a dove always gives up. Okay? Now, when a hawk runs into a hawk, they fight over, they fight over some resource. Um, one hawk's going to win half the time, and the other hawk's going to win the other half the time. Okay? In an idealized way of looking at this. Um, but there's going to be a cost because you're going to get wounded. Right? If you're a dove, you don't get wounded. You, don't get, you also don't get the prize. You never win against a hawk, ever. If there's a fight over resource, you never win. But you never get hurt either, ever. You just walk away. And then what happens when two doves run into each other? There's some sort of display. Now, we can think of this as sort of ritualized fights in the animals. You see this a lot. Think about dogs. If you play with a dog, and they get on their back, and they put their uh, legs like this, and they're, they're their neck, that's actually a display. That's a give up thing. When your dog's doing that, it's like, oh, he loves this W rope. Yeah, maybe he does. But he's also going, I really do give up. You are the dominant thing around here. Because I'm showing you my throat where you could kill me. And two dogs, unless you've got a fighting dog of some sort, you're Michael Vick. Um, when you see two dogs that are sort of play fighting, when one does that, the other one just stops. That's a display. Now, if you get two doves together, they just display to each other. I don't know. There's the only cost there is the time. And then eventually one display is better than another one, and he wins the prize. So you can see how being really non-aggressive, if there's a lot of aggressive people around you, or just the people, is a really good strategy if it's rare. Or on the other hand, if everybody's peaceful, being a bully is a great strategy. Right? If you guys were all meek and mild, and I would walk up and say, give me 20 bucks, and you went, okay. I win until someone else figures out to be a bully, and then we have to fight. Right? So I think frequency-dependent selection probably plays a role here, too. And a lot of psychological traits are factored traits, which just means that they're really... The gene-environment interaction is a big thing, so the changes in the environment do change these psychological traits. So I think we've got a lot of reasons why there is variability in personality. Okay, does it make sense? Those are reasons that I think they're in the book, and they're reasons that make sense to me. Okay, um, let's talk about some traits. And let's talk about intelligence. Now, a lot of people say that intelligence isn't a personality trait. I think it fits the bill pretty nicely because it, it's, it's about how you consistently behave and think. Right? I think people don't want it to be a personality trait. <laughs> I think that's why people don't think it's one. I think that's what it is. And it's hard to think of it because this is socially desirable. More of this is better. 
There is, is there a case in your life, can you make a case for being dumb? You can't. You can't make a case for having low intelligence. You can make a case for having low aggression. You can have a case. You can make a case for having uh, low uh, empathy. You can have a, make a case for having a low amount of openness or high, right? But I don't know of a culture on this planet that really thinks that low intelligence is awesome. And you can't make an adaptive case for it either. So it's exceedingly socially desirable. So we seem to put it in this separate category. Which says something psychologically just about all, I was going to say society, about societies, about humans. Right? So I think it fits the bill nicely because, in fact, it's, it's, it's a characteristic, it's a, it's a thing that you, it affects how you behave over time and the changes, uh, any, any change in the environment, there's going to be some effect there, but for the most part, you behave in a more or less intelligent way as far as your problem solving. I guess part of the problem turn my ring around here is that oh I lost it. Part of the problem is that I don't think people know if it's one ability or many abilities. Okay? And that's 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 a real question. And I think a pretty good one. Okay. So, and is there a general intelligence as G? Okay. So, how could we determine this? That's a good question. So, the way that this has been determined over the years is, is, is people have been given tests. Uh, so, these are just testing instruments of different kinds of sort of intelligence, right? And, and different kinds of tests that all correlate with the same stuff. They all correlate with things like academic success. They correlate with uh, job success, those kind of things, don't they? Um, but they're all different tests. You know, you can think of like the... the, 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 uh, the uh, Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale, the WACE. And if any of you have had an intelligence test since you've been an adult, you've done that. If you ever had the WISC as you were a kid, the Wechsler Intelligence uh, Scale for Children, um, that's a very common one for kids. Okay? But then there's also, and then there are paper and pencil type tests. There's also a tester asking you questions. Spawn. There's all kinds of interesting things in there. There's everything from how many in, in the whisk. There's things like how many synonyms to a word can you name, so it gets the size of your uh, lexicon. Backward uh, digit span. So I give you eight seven four two one three four two, and I want you to repeat those back to me backwards. By the way, that's pretty hard. That was, that, don't, nobody has it. If any of you have a backward digit span of like nine, you're pretty impressive. But then. And that's a, those are fine intelligence tests. But then, there's the Raven progressive matrices. Which is, you know, you've seen it? It's like um, pictures, and there's 15 of them. And then it says, what's number 16? They're hard, but they also correlate with academic success. They also correlate with uh, your earning potential. Wow. So you, Two things seem very different. 
So what did we, what do researchers do? They take a lot of these tests, they give them to different individuals, so the same people, and then they do what's called factor analysis. Factor analysis is a fancy statistical technique that um, is well beyond the scope of this course. <laughs> that involves it's well beyond the scope of the advanced stats course that some of you will be taking next term and some of you have to. But what it involves is determining how how variances hang together in n-dimensional space. Okay? So you can find out then clusters of variants, and you can come up with things like <coughs> spatial reasoning, verbal reasoning. But then you see what those things have in common, and that is G, general intelligence. People that score high on spatial reasoning score high on verbal reasoning as a rule. As a rule. Okay? And it's probably something hierarchical, I'll show you a little diagram in a second. But there's G at the top, which is general intelligence, which is going to affect a whole bunch of other sub-intelligences. But it seems pretty clear there actually is a general intelligence. Okay. So it looks kind of like this. This is one model. This is um, Thurston, I think, his model. So there's G, general intelligence. But then you have verbal comprehension, verbal fluency, number, spatial ability, memory, perceptual ability, and reasoning. By the way, and people say, well, what do you mean people with high verbal have high sort of spatial reasoning? When people don't have, when people have score low on one of these and high on the rest of them, we call that a learning disability. It's a thing. When people score low on all of them, we call them not that bright. Right? Like if you score low on everything, we don't say you've got a learning disability. We say you've got a you're not that bright. But if you score low on one of these, we, we it's it's it is anomalous. That's the point I'm making. It's weird to score low on one thing, and that's why it's considered a disability, right? Right? I'm sure, but I would imagine, eh, probably too small a room. There might be somebody in here that's dyslexic, for example. Put your hand up. I don't want you to do that. You can if you want. I'm not trying to mark anybody out of place. Um, but if you are, you probably are doing fine on everything else. But if you were scoring as low as you do on your um, verbal comprehension, as you do, or probably fluency, probably both of these, on everything else, you probably wouldn't have a high enough G to be here. Right? But if you're low on one thing, and I've taught students that had um, a real problem with uh, spatial or spatial and number stuff, right? And they're high on everything else. And that's that's a that's a math learning disability. Right? Because if you're high on everything else, we again look, if this is all connected to G, they go, ooh, that's weird. How'd that happen? Doesn't this look like a modular approach to intelligence, right? But there is something common among all of them, which is G. Which is G. Make sense? Now, one, has asked, one could ask, are there other kinds of intelligence? It's an excellent question. Like, Creativity. 
How shall we measure that? Somebody give me a crazy person. See if we all agree on Christmas Cream. Name somebody who's crazy. I don't mean no random here. I need a famous person. Who? Da Vinci. Perfect. I love it. Would anybody argue that Da Vinci was creative? I think we all agree with that. Sure. Okay. How about Albert, Albert Einstein? Pretty creative guy. How about Mary Curie? Pretty creative woman. How about Picasso? How about Shakespeare? Sure. I think we don't. I think nobody in here is going. No, Shakespeare was a hack, <laughs> right? What did Einstein and Shakespeare have in common? I don't know. They're creative. No, that see that doesn't help. <laughs> so the problem with creativity is measuring it. The, the intelligence is easy because we have things like or easier because we can agree that doing well academically has something to do with intelligence. We can all agree on that. So the problem, one of the problems with creativity is I don't even know what it means. There are things that people try to use to measure creativity, the remote associates test. Another remote associates test, it's like a game, it's like that game Tribond. In fact, the game Tribond is based on the remote associates test. Or if it isn't, the people that develop the remote associates test should sue somebody. You give you three words and you've got to figure out what brings them together. So uh, cigarettes, heroin, none. Anybody got that? Habit. So they're like that. That was kind of an easier one. Then you got so no creativity in this room, obviously. The thing is, oh, sorry. Is that kind of like that for this one working? Exactly the same idea. It's exactly the same. So, but we can. And it's interesting, people, when they wake up from REM sleep, score higher on the the, the tripod test, on the low associate test, than they do when they're woken up from non-REM sleep, because in REM sleep, you're being, quote, creative, because you're creating a narrative of all these random hallucinations in your head. <laughs> Makes some sense. Makes some sense. And the data show it's very nice and clear. But do you think that Einstein and Da Vinci and Marie Curie and Shakespeare would score high on that? I don't know. I just don't know. First of all, they're all you know quite dead, so I don't know how we're going to do this experiment. But I think it's a thing we call creativity. Is it an actual characteristic, like a personality characteristic, or a sub kind of intelligence? That's the other question, and I'm not entirely sure. I remain unconvinced. You find me something I can measure creativity with, and then we'll start talking. Um, other domain-specific abilities, yes. So, for example, some people are just good at very specific things for certain types of problems. Right? So you might see somebody who because they have a lot of experience in something, is very good at this is, okay, let's probably all you guys drive or almost all you guys drive, right? And you probably have an experience that you know what you're doing, you can drive a car. You think you could drive a Formula One car. Even slowly. 
probably not, right? Because it's a whole different kind of driving. The thing is, I bet if we had, I don't know, Lewis Hamilton, who's a pretty good driver, I don't like him very much, but he's a good driver, um, and he gave you one of your cars, he could outdrive you like crazy because he just knows how to drive. It's a very specific set of skills he has. Suddenly I'm doing Liam Neeson and Pig. It's a very specific set of skills. I'm going to find you. I'm going to kill you. Friend Ken said that's that's like the sort of it's like it's like that movie's almost like dad protecting your daughter porn. Like is this that's <laughs> and you don't know that until you have a daughter and you're a, like a guy and you're always like protective of your daughter, right? And there's always this thing in the back of your head like, well, I'd kill a guy for my daughter, no problem. Anybody comes near, I'll just kill him. And then you watch that movie. <laughs> I won't watch that though because it just disturbs me too much. A lot of things I could watch before I had kids and now I can't. Um, so it's something like that where something very specific people are good at are those have something to do with intelligence. Probably. Probably. Um, what about non-school things? Because most intelligence tests are about school. Now, the written progressive matrices test is not. Right? It is not about school. It's the ability to solve patterns. That's one of the, one of the reasons it's, it's used a lot when people do cross-cultural comparisons of things. Next thing is it actually correlates really nicely with all those other more academically oriented ones. But if it's a personality characteristic, right, intelligence, it should also show up in sort of non-school situations. Intelligence tests don't do very well with these. Typically. What about emotional intelligence? You hear about this a lot. Your EQ. Your emotional quotient. Your ability to keep your emotions in check. Your ability to... react appropriately in appropriate situations. In different situations. Nobody's measuring that very well either. And are these, is this, I can see this going in with intelligence. I can see this going in with intelligence. I can see this going in with intelligence. I don't think, to, to me, does that go in with intelligence? I'm not sure. It doesn't feel the same to me. So perhaps is what I'll say are other intelligences. And the thing I think we should remember is the hunter-gatherer intelligence would be different than an SAT or a GRE. I got a feeling that the smartest hunter-gatherer you could find, be it 200,000 years ago, or be it we go to, we go to the Amazon and find somebody who lives that lifestyle, and I bet everybody in their, in their group could say that's the smartest person. We'll give that person the SAT, they'd probably say, and we'd translate into their language, they'd be screwed. However, if we gave, I would imagine, any of us a test about how to be a hunter-gatherer, I don't think we'd do very well either. So how do you hunt with no guns? <laughs> right? When you see these kind of tracks, what does it mean? Oh, I don't know. No one taught me that. So I think it's something that we have to keep in mind as well. All that said, there is variation in intelligence. Why does this happen? 
the first thing you think of is brain size, the first thing I think of. Except that, and is there some explanatory value of the size of your brain? Does it correlate with your IQ? Yeah, it does. But it's such a small amount that it just doesn't matter. And in fact, for example, women's brains, even when correcting for body size, are smaller than men's brains. But women don't score on average any lower than men are IQ tests. So it could be that women are using their brain more efficiently. That's the way that people think about it. Women have a bigger corpus callosum than men, for example. There's more communication than probably between the two hemispheres, women than there's men. Uh, do they uh, incorporate brain folding in those, or is it just size? Uh, the stuff I've seen is the... Yeah, overall size, like weight. Yeah. But you're talking about like how much the cortex is folded, right? Yeah. That works pretty well between species. Yeah, within species, it really doesn't work very well at all. There is some stuff. London cab drivers with a bigger hippocampus than non-cab drivers in London. England, not Ontario. <laughs> Ontario is pretty easy to figure out. But does that come from them using it a lot? Or does that come from people with really good spatial memory who decide they couldn't become cab drivers? Become a cab driver in London, by the way, there's a serious set of tests you have to pass. You have to be able to basically be a, a, a walking human, like a human GPS, which would be nice for cab drivers in other cities. So it's so small that, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of stuff right now. For example, there's a lot of information out there right now that says that autistic people have bigger brains than they should. Not enough synaptic pruning. Not enough neural Darwinism. Not enough dead, not enough dying brain. So, this is such a gross measure. I mean, it doesn't seem to get us anywhere. Well, it's got to be a polygenetic trait. There's no way there's a single intelligence gene with different alleles that give you different levels of intelligence. I, I find that exceedingly hard. In fact, almost any personality variable is going to be polygenetic. Has to be. Has to be. Um, are there any challenges during development? I think that's one reason we're going to see differences in intelligence. Um, no, sorry, another reason? Because, you know, when you got a fetus growing inside a, a, a woman. Even those teensiest little suboptimal thing that one day can have a teeny effect. Right? Be it environment, be it, be it if the food the person's eating, the amount of sleep the mother gets that night, whatever. But I want to caution you. Oh, that's true. That's true. And there are a lot of challenges, and especially there was during the EEA. A lot more than there are today. If you see a pregnant woman having a glass of wine, don't think she's worse than Hitler, please. Okay? Please do not judge the person. If you see a falling young drunk, I think, yeah, you probably should judge her. But if you see, and, and well, she's smoking a cigarette, that's a bad thing. She's pregnant. But look, you have a glass of wine now and then, or beer, and you're pregnant, you know Trouble being pregnant is, it's not easy. Don't be a jerk. Especially if you've never had children. By the way, that, that's, not, that's always the greatest. I can't believe she's doing that. Oh, really? Do you have kids? No. 
So what's your experience then? Just, everybody should just be nice to pregnant women. They've got enough on their plate as it is. I can't even imagine what that would be like. You know, you gotta, every pregnant woman I've ever talked to, when you get to about the eighth month, goes, I just wish this thing would get a little bit here. Because you're like, you got a thing inside you, and you can feel it moving. It's like, oh, just, just, at first it's great, and it's like, just get out of me. Just, I've had enough. <laughs> every pregnant woman, literally every pregnant woman I've ever talked to says that. I mean, they obviously have to know me well enough, and I just walk up to random pregnant women in the street. <laughs> so you're getting kind of sick of the little parasite inside you. Enough. <laughs> All I know is this: if guys got pregnant, and you know, if I, you know, and then you see if you, the weirdest thing is when you see a fist or a foot. And that's right around eight, nine months. Like you can actually see the outline of a fist pushing on the belly. If I saw that, I'd go, "Well, that's it." I, uh, <laughs> I just. Open up right now and take the thing out, because this is horrible. There's a lot of challenges during development, though. So, I mean, that's going to cause a lot of... And you've got a lot of time during development. And then development doesn't really happen um, in utero. It happens after the kid's born, right? And brains are expensive. Um, metabolically, exceedingly expensive. So, the first thing that's going to... One of the first things that's going to be affected during development is going to be because of... These sort of challenges will be your brain. Okay, so I want to take an evolution. Any, anybody have any other ideas why there's variation in intelligence? So, I mean, it's probably more variation there is in other personality traits, but we, because it's so socially desirable, I think that's the reason. Anyway, if we're to take an evolutionary approach to intelligence, there's certain implications here. The first one is that we we have to take in mind, keep in mind, we learn things in school that are pretty evolutionarily novel. Okay? I bet the differences would be as pronounced noticeably uh, in a hundred gatherer society as they would be, like back in the EEA, as they are today in our society. Because we have things that are evolutionarily novel, like reading and math. Reading is, humans invented writing stuff down. Like, that's a human invention. It's not a, that's not an adaptation, is it? Same thing with math. I'm not talking about arithmetic. I'm not talking about counting. I'm talking about, you know, taking, the, take, taking derivatives. I'm talking about solving equations. Solving identities, knowing the angle-side angle theorem. Flashback to high school there. The, the variation is huge in those things. The interesting thing is there's very little variation in the ability to learn language when you are a baby and a toddler. And everybody learns to count. So expressing language and reading it in a written form, there's a lot of variation there. There's a Shakespeare, then there's us. Right? We got the greats, then we got some us. But and we also got even just variation in the room. There are people in here that like to write, people that don't. I hate writing. I'm very good at it. And math. Some people are good at math. Other people aren't good at math. And there's that, that variation. But does anybody here have trouble learning human language? I don't think so. We all seem to speak just fine. 
Did anybody here have trouble learning to count? I didn't say do math. I didn't say add. I said count. No. Right? Do those things play a role in this? Yes, but obviously if there's very little variation here, a lot of variation here, something else is going on. So we can take an evolutionary approach to intelligence, but we have to realize that most of the problems we're solving in, in, in modern societies are so not what the problems that were being solved in the EEA. Right? So that's intelligence. It's an interesting topic. Um, we'll talk about some other personality traits. How many personality traits are there? Well, people like the big five, because there's five of them. So there's openness and conscientiousness and extroversion and agreeableness and neuroticism, which I've, I put really small in. I don't know why. So that's about openness to new experiences. Basically. All right. So that is just one kind of approach to a, to personality. So, and it's, it's more or less of this extroversion, introversion. being uh, agreeable or disagreeable, uh, neuroticism versus really being comfortable in your skin kind of thing. Okay. The biggest problem with personality traits, it seems to me, is that people seem to think it's, they can measure these things themselves with a quiz on Facebook. Um, <laughs> and then, talk, then post links about being an introvert. intelligence, and intelligence does vary, but it seems a lot less variable than the quote big five. The data show that. Um, why is that? These other personality traits are probably a lot more factors than intelligence is. Remember, intelligence, the idea of intelligence is novel problem-solving ability. If you can't solve novel problems, your ancestors never had any babies. And the optimal amount, see, being smart is never going to be bad. There's never going to be a situation I can think of where having, being smart would be a detriment. Right? Not going to happen. I can't think of a, a scenario where it's like, well, are there any really dumb guys here? I bet they have a solution. <laughs> That's not how it works. But, the optimal amount of, of, of extroversion and introversion changes a lot depending on the situation. I think we can all come up with situations where being extroverted makes sense or where being introverted makes sense, right? So there's a lot more variation in what's optimal there. Uh, so conclusion about this, so we'll do some of the health stuff today. A lot of factors affect personality and intelligence. Note that even though I said that intelligence is a personality, Right. I'm still splitting them up because they do seem somewhat different. Um, I think discussing intelligence separately makes some sense, uh, partially because that point three thing, 
with, uh, so explaining 90% of the variance, I can explain 25% of the variance in your grades with an IQC test. I can explain 25% of the variance in your salary once you become an adult with your IQ. And they correlate to 0.5. Also, the heritability of a lot of personality tests, the amount of variance in your genome that explains variance in the trait, it's about 0.3 for a lot of personality variables. For intelligence, it's about 0.6. Smart people have smart kids. And yes, I know, smart people also tend to have to raise their kids in nice environments. It's not just genes, it's always the interaction. So it makes some sense probably to discuss it separately, even though I think it's worse now. Um, this, is, this is becoming much more generally accepted than it was maybe 25 years ago, where you were thought of as a radical nut if you took, took an evolutionary approach to something like personality. That's really changed. I don't think that's a good thing. Questions on that, on this stuff? Okay. I'm not as fond of this lecture. And just like I said, there's not a, well, not a lot of meat there. But the health one, if you want to take time to download that, if you haven't. <coughs> just one. There we go. So we get to this, that, that. that. <laughs> it didn't have to be that dramatic about it. You're not going to work? Well, to hell with you then. Changing presentations always seems to screw up my presentation. <coughs> okay, we talk about stress and health. This is an area, in fact, where looking at an evolutionary angle of things is huge. And this is a recent thing, and I think a pretty exciting thing for a lot of people. How many people here have heard about the, quote, paleo diet? Oh, yeah, right? Eat like a caveman. That's a big thing. There are sort of paleo, if you want to call them that, approaches to exercise. Um... It turns out, by looking at modern hunter-gatherers uh, in, in the Amazon, typically, um, they actually are just as sedentary as you and I are. They sit around a lot. But they also, when they, when they do exercise, they exercise exceedingly intensely, because they're out running after things to kill to eat. Or, and again, usually this division of labor, uh, the women are with the kids, and they're bending over and picking uh, in, 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 getting roots and nuts and berries and stuff, and they're carrying really heavy bundles of stuff. It's intense, short exercise. I'm not saying everybody should start doing intense, short exercise. But I'm saying that the idea that it's because we all just sit around and do nothing all day isn't entirely... It looks like there's very little... This, this, was, this came out a couple of years ago. Um, looking at the average number of steps someone takes, walking steps between uh, it was the Amazonian tribe and looking at actual people living in, 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 um, in Brazil, so the same country, in a city, they took just the same number of steps in Chile. But the amount of intense exercise the hunter-gatherers got was a lot higher. So that's kind of interesting. So 
behavior has a lot of serious health effects, things like smoking and other drugs, um, includes alcohol. Your diet, which is something that I've just was talking about. Buddy of mine actually teaches a whole course, uh, a special topics course, fourth year class at the University of Alberta in the psychology department called Ancestral Health. And it's basically about the hunter-gatherer hunter life, how they led their lives, and the implications that has for looking at human health uh, today. Kind of neat stuff. You might see sometimes commenting on my things on Facebook, the guys named Chris Sturdy. Um, and your reaction to stress is a big thing. We'll talk about that first. So there's a whole subset of psychologists called health psychologists, and they look at how our perceptions affect our reactions to stress. That's one of the things they look at. And when I say perceptions, I mean how do we perceive a situation, not like how well it is in psychophysics here. They are doing, you know, Weber's law experiments. And they're looking at a stressful situation and how you react to it. Right? So emotions. And people talk a lot about emotions, personality, and disease. So one of the things they'll study. So your emotional reaction to something, then how you filter it through your personality. So how you behave and think about a stressor. And then, does this lead to things like cancer and heart disease? Uh, yes, by the way. <laughs> Another question a lot of health psychologists ask is, why do some seek treatment, and why do some not seek treatment? Okay. And that's an interesting question, that's a sort of personality question as well. There are people that go to the doctor for everything, right? Don't you hate that? You're at the doctor's office and you're going, like, why are you here? Well, it's like one week checkup. Um, <laughs> you know, you're at the emergency. I've been in the emergency, I've been once since we moved here. Once. We've lived here 11 years. I've been once. It was because I was so sick and I had goo coming out of my eyes. And I thought, that's bad. You should probably go to a doctor. <laughs> It was pretty nasty. It was a pretty nasty eye infection I had. It was, it was, it was a very unpleasant experience. Um, could have been Ebola. I think it was probably Ebola. <laughs> but, uh, by the way, if you go to, a, 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 to the doctor, like you go to the, the emergency, you call yourself doctor. They love that. They, right away, they, they give you the good service. And Dr. Broadbeck, that was fun. Well, I've never met you, Dr. Broadbeck. No, I'm a real doctor. I have a PhD. Um, <laughs> the, the guy laughed. To his credit, he laughed. Uh, then he took my blood pressure and said all PhDs were the same. Uh, but anyway, but you go in there and you see that there's somebody in there and their kid's got a stuffy nose. And it's like, unless your kid's got a really serious uh, something else, your kid's got a stuffy nose. You know what the cure for that is? Just go home. There's other people. It's like, well, if I don't look at it, it's not cancer. <laughs> Just they don't want to even ever go to a doctor? That's, that's an interesting question. So, we talk about stress and illness. Um, emotions, we're talking about here, and the fight or flight response. So that's your parasympathetic, or sorry, your sympathetic nervous system kicking in. That's epinephrine, right? This is to fight, this, this, this is to run away from a sacred tiger. 
That's the function of this thing. Blood is pumped towards your uh, quick twitch muscles in your legs so you can run fast. You stop worrying about digesting food. Your pupils dilate. You start breathing more heavily. We've all had it. It's a stress response, right? This made great sense 100,000 years ago. This made great sense 5,000 years ago. And it still makes sense sometimes. Yesterday, in Ottawa, it made a great deal of sense for people to get really, the people that were being shot at, to get really, 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 really stressed. They were fighting a crazy guy with a gun. That video is unreal. You seen that? The guy took with his phone, the little mail reporter. His Twitter feed was amazing yesterday. He said, Mo just called, said, what the hell are you doing? Because <laughs> he's like, you're like, <laughs> could have been worse. He could have like taken a selfie, right? You know? But I just said selfie. I, I, that's it. I, 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 I can't believe I said that. I, I tried God and never say it. I should say picture of himself. It's like I don't say tweet, I say Twitter post. Because I don't want to sound like a Um So it made sense in those situations. It's still useful if you're if you play sports. Right? You want to get too excited, of course, and be paralyzed in fear, but you want to be able to skate faster, run faster. Okay? So it made great sense 100,000 years ago. You're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. So there's you 100,000 years ago. And now it's not the case, because some kid is making you look bad playing Halo 4, right? And those of you that play video games and play online, sometimes you do get really upset, and it's stupid. <laughs> and that's when you should get walk away. Just walk away. My son does that. He'll scream. He doesn't play online because uh, well, I, don't, I don't let him yet. I, I don't think it's a good idea for him yet. Because he rage quits games. So it's, <laughs> so it's no fun. But I mean, I'll hear him scream, It's a disaster! I can't believe it! And he's getting all upset. It's like, what happened? It's like, I got killed. It's like, what's a video game? You get killed. It's what happens. Just move on. Now, I feel the same way, but I laugh now because I realize this really is not that important. And then I have those wonderful moments when you hear some kid make fun of you. But I just, I do it right back to him. <laughs> right? Dee Broadbeck, you suck. Yeah? You ever had sex with a woman? <laughs> I have. Probably haven't, have you said? Things like that. So. It's demonstrably true. His voice hasn't changed. Uh, and he's telling me I'm a bad person somehow. And it's like, no, you're... That's, I actually bought this Xbox. It's mine. My parents don't make me... Don't tell me when to play. It's mine. I have money. You don't. You know, things like this. I did, I did use that one once. And in fact, the guy got so embarrassed. It was in the, the room after, you know, the, the sort of uh, waiting room kind of thing, the, waiting, the lobby after a game. And this kill death ratios come up. And this kid's yelling at all of us. And he did, he right back, you suck. And I said that to him. And everybody started laughing. <laughs> and he just went, he left. <laughs> so it's, it's a great moment. It was a great moment. I was, I was pretty, actually, I believe that violates Xbox Live's terms of service. But uh, I'm still proud of it, Dan. Um, the problem is your fight or flight response does kick in when you're playing these games. 
it's it, it, you know your heart if, if you're even if you're not even playing online, let's just say you're playing one uh, just offline, you're, you're doing the campaign or something, it can get very intense, right? And the more real a game is, and games are getting more and more engaging, the more they will suck you in. This will happen watching uh, an exciting movie or TV show. It'll happen. I don't. I have trouble sometimes watching hockey games when the Montreal Canadiens are playing because it, it's a. It's, well, that's the closest thing I have to religion, and. <laughs> What ends up happening is, if they're playing a team that I really, really, really hate, I'm afraid they're going to lose, and I watch it, and the whole time, it's not fun for me anymore. So it's just, I'm just sitting there like, <laughs> <laughs> so I just don't watch. Until they're way ahead, then I watch. And then I watch the, I watch the other team's feed, because I want to see the other team, teams and answers cry. I think that's funny. Um, and my dad used to subscribe to Leafs TV just so he could watch the schadenfreude of watching the coaches' news conference after the games. <laughs> also didn't like the Leafs very much. Leafs have a TV channel? Yeah. yeah. Leafs TV. <laughs> They're uh, tied for being the second most popular team in Canada along with the Vancouver Canucks. Most popular is the Montreal Canadiens, by the way. Um, so it's interesting that we still have these reactions. How many times have you been in a, in, a, in a store and someone's in front of you, you just want to buy that chocolate bar, and they're buying lottery tickets? Right? So first of all, they're enumerate. Um, though they're helping to fund the healthcare system, so I'm okay with that. But, and then, I don't know, you, I, I, you know, again, I used to get really angry in line. I don't anymore. Because, now, again, I, when I was your age, I was horrible. <laughs> But I don't get angry in lineups because I figure that's not really helping the line move anymore quickly. And all I'm doing is making myself upset. My dad had a heart attack when he was 53 years old. I don't, I'm at 49. I don't want to have that happen. And he invented being intense. Um, so, wait, you've seen that, right? Or do you be there? Bank machine, and there's an old lady, and she doesn't know how to use a bank machine. Sure, you know. She goes and says, What's my number? I don't know your number. Now, why do you never tickle your money? You know? She's got the card in, somehow, how she's put it in upside down and backwards. You know? So, those kind of things, they actually feel like stressful situations. And they aren't. They aren't things that this thing was selected for doing. When you're Having a bad, when you were about to write a test, right? People here feel their heartbeat, they get upset when they're going to write a test. Anybody like that? Okay, okay. Do you know that's completely ridiculous, right? Of course, of course you know. Yeah. Rationally. But it happens anyway. You're, you're, you're perceiving that as a stressor. And this system that, was, that has evolved in animals, not just us, to deal with a real stressor, a life threatening situation, which that is not. You know, just like playing video games, not just like watching Montreal play Boston is not. It feels like it, but it's not. <laughs> feeling if Milan Lucic was here, I'd be just cowering in the corner, <laughs> giving him the finger. Um, <laughs> so it's that kind of thing. I mean, it is useful. The problem is that. There are a lot of bad consequences to that kind of stress reaction, including literally including brain damage. Now, it, you need a it's damaged the hippocampus. It's caused by cortisol, and you need so much stress to do that. So please don't think 
We don't think you're damaging your brain by getting upset with this, okay? Yeah. All right. So there are good things about stress. Um, it can save your life. Right? It can save your life. If you are in an actual life-threatening situation, stress will save you. Stress can save you because, in fact, it allows you to run a little faster. Right? Things like that. It allows you to have a little more physical strength than you normally have. Those are important characteristics when your life is actually in danger. So if you're going to fight, if you're in an accident, you always hear about these cases of people that are able to lift something really heavy and that somebody's trapped somewhere. Those are real things. People don't get super strength, but they are a little bit stronger. And they pay a little less attention to pain, in fact, and that's because of the epinephrine. You actually pay a little less attention. They don't feel as much pain. There's a reason why soldiers, when they're in combat, can get hit and keep fighting. If you just got shot right now, you'd be like, oh, God, this is the worst thing in my life. It's horrible. You probably would have shot. But if it happens to a soldier and they're in the middle of a firefight, they should be a little stressed because, you know, you can die. But they keep going, right? A test, even, a little bit of stress on a test is a good thing. In fact, there's the way I have that up here. There's a thing in psychology called the Yerkes Dotson law. And the amount of stress you have, this is going to be your performance here. And this is the amount of stress you're experiencing. Something in the middle actually helps you because it motivates you. Not enough stress, you're asleep. Too much, you're having a panic attack. And you pass out. I saw that once during a test. It freaked me out. Third year stats exam. And that woman just collapsed. Like she collapsed. And then the paramedics had to come to a four-hour final exam. And if you didn't get 70 in this course, you just like cars, you couldn't do the honors thesis, except there were 300 people in this class. So we're all sitting in this big, um, what the hell were we? Thames Hall, so it's a big gym at Western. And then I left the exam going from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night. 40 questions, ridiculous. And this woman just snapped and collapsed. And then they stopped the exam. They told us all to turn our papers over. And I looked over my friend and said, I thought this only happened on TV. <laughs> and, you know, she was OK. She was back for the abnormal psych test a few days later. Uh, she mentioned a little makeup, whatever. But it was it's disturbing. So too much, you get a panic attack. Not enough. You don't care. Someone knows, but that's where you want to be when you're, when you're doing some task, where you're not an expert at it. When you're actually an expert, being stressed, if you're overtrained in something, can actually help you do well. Right? There's a reason that, again, soldiers, law enforcement, train like hell, especially soldiers. There's a reason that NHL hockey players still have practices. They all know how to skate, eh? Right? And if you see that video that guy shot yesterday, he was the reckless idiot. He's got no training. You, see, you saw what the RCMP guys were like. It's an entirely different way. They, they, they're yelling, and they're stressed as hell, but they're also all taking cover properly and doing everything they're supposed to do. Going, even though was, the guy wasn't at the end of the hall, he was down around the corner. You're still, you still hide. A friend of mine said, why the hell did he just walk in? I don't know. But you don't know how you behave in that situation either. So what is it? It's the process for which you're praised and cope with environmental threats and challenges. Again, the threat sometimes is real. 
That's the goodest definition. Is any? I don't know where I got that from. I probably just Googled it. Um, the interesting thing about this system, too, is it takes 45 seconds or a minute to kick in, doesn't it? This system, this, unlike your regular your, your, your peripheral nervous system, look, I thought about doing that, I did that. <laughs> it happens basically right away. The difference here is that this will take 45 seconds. Because you, you actually have to start um, releasing epinephrine into the nervous system. Or, sorry, into the uh, circulatory system. So this is why, for example, in a stressful situation, at the very beginning of it, you don't feel stressed. And then you do later. And the funny thing is, if it's a very quick stressful situation, and it's over, you'll then have the stress reaction anyway. Right? I remember driving, and I told some of you guys a story, uh, on Highway 69, about 10, 10 years ago, eight years ago. I don't know why. I, why am I trying to be accurate with something that is just a story? It happened, but you know, I don't expect you to write this down. But we were driving along Highway 69, one of those two lane bits that are happily all going away, and a great big truck came at us and was about to swing off on the shoulder and around, and it was amazing. And uh, she's a great driver, it's wonderful. I, I, I trust two people in the world driving the car Isabel and Natalie. Everybody else is a little bit nervous. Used to be three, my dad was alive. That, that's it. The rest of you guys may be nice, give me a ride somewhere. The whole time I'm thinking, I'm still not sure about this person. Um, <laughs> so we got out of it, but then I said, You should probably pull over. She said, Why? I said, well, You're about to, your heart's going to beat fast and your mouth's going to get dry. You're going to have a metallic taste in your mouth. That's actually what epinephrine tastes like. Things are going to get really bright because your pupils are going to dilate. And she actually did. She said, oh, my God. So I said, no, 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 it's totally normal. It's good. But it takes some time for it to happen. It takes some time for it to happen. Which is one of the kind of weird things about it. And I remember the first time I used to wrestle in school. And the first time I was in an actual match, not in a practice, because the coach was telling us, you're going to get really, it's a really intense experience because you're actually fighting somebody. Make sure you drink a lot of water before because you're going to get really thirsty. That's part of the stress reaction. And it's like, oh, 30 seconds in, and I'm grappling with this kid thing. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, <laughs> you know. So, the, the, the biggest problem I have with the term stress itself, I, I like this environmental threats and challenges. I, it seems to me that the word stress is used a lot when MDs don't know what to blame things on. Oh, it's just stress. Oh, it's just stress. They don't know what it is. They can't diagnose it by stress. So I think it gets used a lot in popular sort of parlance, too. So I think it's something that it's, it's a term that I don't like very much, but that's partially because it's a perfectly good term that's been co-opted by society. Okay, so how does this whole thing work? Uh, this was originally figured out by a guy named Cannon way back a long time ago. Uh, and you call it the fight or flight response. That's, that's where that term comes from. And it's, it's, it runs on the hormones, uh, which are also neurotransmitters, by the way, but when you release them to the blood, they're, they're interacting with uh, neurons, they become hormones. Epinephrine and norepinephrine, or adrenaline and noradrenaline, you might see those terms used. So your heart rate increases. In fact, you know, 
back before they had the defibrillators, you know, the way that uh, if someone had a heart attack, the way that you would get someone's heart beating again is you would use a great, you know, like in Pulp Fiction, a great big needle right into the heart and you shoot adrenaline. And it will make your heart beat. So people that had heart problems uh, used to be in, in a, beside their bed in a hospital. It was a cardiac kit. And what it was was um, a scalpel, some bone cutters, and a great big needle because you got these like bolt cutter type things through your rib cage and then right into the heart with the needle. Yeah, good times. The clear, but that sounds a lot better. Your breathing goes up. And I mentioned, you know, you get your blood gets diverted from your guts for digestion. It gets diverted in, in, to, to uh, quick, quick twitch muscles, things like that. Okay. People's dilate. Okay. This work that he did, Selvin, this goes to the guy at McGill. He injected, people discovered hormones in the you know, early to mid part of the last century. So this guy's like, you know what I'm going to People were doing this to He wasn't just weird injecting hormones. He wasn't some kind of weird guy. I'm going to be mean to rats. People were doing this. They were, they would, a hormone would get isolated. They'd inject it into a rat and see what happened. So he was doing this. Various hormones, all kinds of different things. Um, he found the enlargement of the adrenal gland, adrenal cortex, which runs sort of the, the, the this was this is what uh, uh, releases uh, adrenaline, right? He found shrinkage of the thymus and he found ulcers. The interesting thing is, by the way, ulcers aren't caused by stress. We now know this. The stress reaction makes your it makes your um, uh, sort of immune system uh, basically resources are diverted away from your immune system which makes a lot of sense because if you're being chased by a safety tiger who cares about healing the cut right? so your immune system gets depressed and in fact uh, ulcers are caused by infections they're not caused directly by stress but he did find ulcers uh, stomach ulcers and he thought well that's weird because this is happening with all my injections of all my hormones so then he injected them with saline and same thing happened. It was the stress reaction to being picked up by something four orders of magnitude bigger than you and being given a needle that's bigger than you. That's a little scary. And in fact, then he found that you could just get these reactions in a rat by just taking the rat out of its cage and holding it like this. Now again, think of it being held like this a couple of hundred feet in the air. It's nice and giant. Scary. The rats wanted a fight or flight. They wanted to be able to just literally fly away. Thank you. Um, and he found so fear and also shocks. So just random shocks. Un- the interesting thing is unpredictable shocks are the key thing. Not predictable shocks. If the rats predict the shock, if there was a light, then a shock, the rats didn't like it. But they didn't have these stress reactions. They had it when it was unpredictable shock. So unpredictable shock, rats freak out. Get become stressed rats. This is at McGill in the uh, like 1940s. Um, 
So he thought he sort of came up with the idea of the general uh, adaptation system. What this is is the first thing you have is an alarm reaction. Your heart rate goes up and blood goes to skeletal muscles. Again, this is getting ready to run away or, or, or kick some ass, right? Very nice. Now you have resistance. This is where you stay up. This is where you keep this happening. And this is the peak amount of arousal. Trying to stay uh, up, so to speak, okay? Adrenaline or adrenaline or epinephrine or epinephrine are released until you've exhausted your epinephrine or epinephrine. You don't ever want to get here. At this point, because the norepinephrine and the epinephrine are gone, um, you can't. You can have no longer maintain faster heartbeat, and you're exceedingly vulnerable. This isn't like just being tired. It's called exhaustion, but I mean, it's, it's you're completely done. I bet none of us have ever been there. You don't want to get that far. This actually leads to uh, hippocampal uh, cells uh, being destroyed. Uh, cortisol gets released, sort of fix everything. And cortisol, which cortisol levels are actually lowered by hippocampus, but it actually destroys part of the hippocampus, which is very important for memory acceleration. Um, so how are you going to not get here? Well, the way you not get here, see, the way you're not going to get there, rather, is you're going to be in good enough cardiovascular shape that you never, that you don't have to be using just adrenaline to power the fact that you're breathing heavily, things like that. So you never want to get that far. It's dangerous. Right. And this is why, for example, they train soldiers to go on these stupid long marches. I was watching this amazing uh, program about the Royal, Royal Marines in the UK. And to pass, to get become a Royal Marine after the 32-week training thing, one day they do a, a nine-mile run with all their gear on. Then the next day they do one of those sort of courses where they have to run through all kinds of crazy things. Oh, the final day they do a, uh, just a 60-mile run wearing 60 pounds of gear. Yeah, that's 100 kilometers. So you run from here all the way to the Mackinac Bridge. And you've got to do that in nine hours. Wearing 60 kilos, so that's 130 pounds of equipment and carrying a rifle. See, because the thing is, you never want to get there when you're actually getting shot at. <laughs> but I was watching this, and guys were getting there. And then that's say, well, you're out. Well, 32 weeks, or you can't be a Royal Marine. Oh, well, that's no good. <coughs> but they were showing this one guy, he's running, and he had like 300 meters left. Like, he's almost done. And he's carrying his stuff, and you just saw all the color go out of his face. And he went, and then 
He was eating the, the, the little crunch pepper in his leg. Um, it's like, wow! So this is a place that none of you guys or I have probably ever been. Right? So again, the idea of memory loss and all this stuff is not really something we have to worry a great deal about. On the other hand, if you have something like post-traumatic stress disorder, you could be getting all the way to here without actually having, without running, uh, you know, doing a 60-mile run or whatever the hell it is. All right. On that strange note, we'll stop there. Uh, and we'll continue on this stuff on. Thanks, guys. podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.